I'm Brother Harry. Most of you all know me, but for those of you that don't know me, I'll tell you this. Please, sir. Thank you. I do have a degree in the ministry. I went to Trinity Baptist College. I got a Bachelor of Arts degree in church ministries with a double major on Christian school administration and associate pastoral duties. Pastor Aaron invited me to come and help him work with this church. At the time, I thought that there were a whole bunch of River City people already here. I found out that there wasn't, so I came to help him with the music ministry and the teaching ministry. Uh, I got saved in Germany in 1980. I didn't walk the aisle, however, until about April of 1981 at a small church called Simbach Bible Baptist Church. And I walked the aisle there and got baptized. Not long after that, I transferred back here to the United States. And while I was stationed at Moody Air Force Base, just, just up in Georgia, I surrendered my life to Christ. And I came down here to Trinity to go to college, turned a four-year degree into a five-year degree because I met my wife. And of course, I had to take a semester off, you know, for honeymoon and stuff like that. It's very important things. Pastor Aaron has been a great, great blessing to me and my wife. You know, a lot of older people, elderly people, and I can say that because I'm 71, sometimes we get this idea that younger people, okay, can't be a blessing, but they can. You need to realize that King David was only 14 years old when he was anointed, approximately 14 years old when he was anointed. Daniel, taken into captivity in his teens, to Babylon, and yet, as a teenager, was called upon by King Nebuchadnezzar and solved a dream that nobody else could. And God opened a door. Daniel lived till his 90s and wrote the book of Daniel. And he was used for years and years and years through three different kings. So let's jump into what we're looking at today. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 3, 19 through 26. We're going to read some scripture this morning. I've got them, going to, they're going to throw some scripture up on the board. But I want you to see some things today. Justified God's righteousness through faith. Many Christians today walk around and they have this, this cloud of guilt. It's one thing to say, Lord, I confess my sin to you. And we know that 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lot of Christians, we don't get to the cleansing part. We don't see that for some reason. But we have this thing, this cloud of guilt. And a lot of that has to do with some of the things we're going to talk about today. Let's pray. Keep Brother Aaron in prayer, Pastor Aaron in prayer. He is up in New York City. He is working on a mission trip. He's not going to be here uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. And Josh and I are standing in the gap for him. He, we're like the Aaron and the Hur holding up the arms of Moses as Moses conducted the battle against the Amalekites. 
So Romans 3, 19 through 26. Now we're going to start with Romans 19 and 20, and then we're going to turn over to Exodus 20, and we're going to read through a very familiar passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. So God's righteousness through faith. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what law are we talking about here? If you turn over to Exodus 20, 1 through 17, or you can look up on the screen, and I'm going to read it for you. Very familiar passage of Scripture. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name, his name, in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now while I make a few other comments here, turn on back to Romans 3. I read that for the purpose of pointing out to you that in verses 19 and 20 that we read first, he's talking about, in one sense, the Mosaic law. So in this Exodus 20, Moses is up on the mount and God is writing with the finger of God upon the tablets as Moses is receiving the commandments. And why would I read the Ten Commandments? There's actually 629 other imperative commandments in the Old Testament that the Israelites had to live. But that's the point. Why did the Israelites, why did God choose that time to give the Israelites? He had just delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. Okay, and God brings them to this point. And at Mount Sinai, he takes Moses, takes him up there. And of course, they've got the fire by night and the cloud by day, and they can see this representation of God. And Moses goes up and he gets the testimony of the Ten Commandments. And on this testimony, on these Ten Commandments, is the foundation, the pillar of all moral law in creation. Down to the very day that we live in now, our consciences. So in verses 19 and 20 that we read first, it's not just the Mosaic Law, because it's the Mosaic Law to the Jews. 
His chosen people, but it's also the moral law of our conscience because the Jew was chosen. The Hebrews were chosen as a nation to live out God's law, but that law cannot save you. So let's go on. In Romans 3.21, it says, but now, here's an important phrase, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all, and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because His forbearance, in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Through the four, four Gospels, and we've, we've just been so blessed to have Pastor Aaron preach through the entirety of the book of John. Possibly the best preaching I've heard in years. To be able to listen to a pastor sit down and preach on the book of John verse by verse. Excellent exposition. And it has blessed me, and I've heard John preached on probably thousands of times. But through the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we learn that Jesus' birth, we learn about Jesus' birth, His humanity, and also of His deity. Since He is the God-man, Colossians 2.9 says, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We see His miracles, His love, His grace, His truth, and the determination to stand and defend His truth since He is literally equated to being the Word of God. We learn of his being hated by his chosen people, persecuted, falsely accused of heresy, fully rejected, betrayed, falsely and illegally tried, beaten and finally murdered by crucifixion on a Roman cross. Outside the city he loved, hung between the two thieves on a hill called Calvary. The savior of the world was then buried in a borrowed tomb. But three days later, he arose, miraculously, resurrected to life, we learn of his choosing of his disciples, which he commissioned to teach and preach the truth about him and salvation he provides through his death, burial, and resurrection. In Acts of the Apostle, we learn about the beginning of a new organization, his church. This group made up of his believers, Jews and Gentiles, of all ethnic groups, regardless of skin color, language, religion, rich or poor, slave or free, is his church. And then, just prior to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, we are introduced to a murderous, hate-filled Jewish zealot named Saul of Tarsus, who was well-educated in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, a renowned Jewish teacher of the law. Saul's zeal to destroy this new church of Christians will be rededicated when confronted by the risen Savior. Saul immediately repents, calling on Jesus as Savior and Lord, we then follow Saul in his spiritual growth and actions. Despite being a Jew, the Lord's commission for Paul, his Roman name, is to reach the Gentiles for Christ. Paul has Roman citizenship and is able to communicate in the languages of his day. This aids him in his ability to travel as a full-time missionary pastor, winning souls to Christ and planting churches nearly everywhere he preaches. Even when in prison, 
Paul wins the loss to Christ. At some point in Paul's travels, he receives information that there are new believers in Rome. Go figure. Because when he was imprisoned, he would witness to the prison guards, those Roman soldiers who would take the gospel back to Rome. Amazing how communication works, isn't it? So from Corinth, while resting during his third missionary journey, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, writes the most comprehensive and compelling doctrinal explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's dealings with mankind ever written. God the Holy Spirit then uses Paul to write two-thirds of the New Testament prior to Paul being martyred by the emperor Nero. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is the theme of Paul's letter to the Roman believers. And in that verse there, if you notice, it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Notice the present tense of that verb is revealed. It means that every time that you as a believer, if you're a believer today, every time you take the gospel out to someone, somebody and you speak to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. Isn't that amazing? That you as an instrument in the hands of God can reveal the righteousness of God to lost mankind. What an awesome, awesome privilege. Let's go on a little bit further here. I want us to focus on verses 21 through 26, because in in our passage up above, 19 and 20, Paul summarizes that there is no justification for mankind by keeping of the law, for the law exposes our sin nature. How can sinners find righteousness? Well, the answer to that is that we can't find righteousness. God has to reveal it to us. So our first point here, righteousness revealed. Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The word of God is all about revealing truth. Okay, The very reason why unbelievers get so upset about Christians being vocal is because the evidence is against them. Regardless of what the lost believe, the lost world, the evidence is against them because it doesn't make the word of God untrue. The word of God is always true. So the very reason, let me go, let me say this. In this context, the righteousness of God is not an attribute of God. See, a lot of people make that mistake. Sure, God is righteous. And as you study through the word of God, you immediately find out that one of God's very characteristics is, is that he is always righteous. We would not know righteousness in the world at all except from God. But this is an act of God whereby he declares a sinner righteous. Now, on, your, on what I passed out, where it says righteousness revealed, that would be your very first word that you can fill in there. But an act of God, right then in there, whereby he declares a sinner righteous. This is righteousness from God. The point of this verse 
is God reveals that His law and the prophets provide testimony to God, declaring sinners righteous apart from the law. This is the very basis of the New Testament. You can look at Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36. Their testimony foretold in the types and shadows of the sacrificial system that required the shedding of blood for atonement. It was foretold by direct prophecies. Isaiah 51, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 56, and Daniel. Let me give you an illustration. The whole sacrificial system bore witness to the righteousness of God. When a Jew brought his sin offering to the temple, he laid his hand on an animal, confessed his sin, then killed the animal, and the priest would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. In doing so, that man witnessed by that very act to the fact that he had a faith in righteousness that was not his own. By faith, he looked forward to the cross of Christ where righteousness of God was manifested. So you see, all of those years that Israel wandered in the wilderness, all those years that Israel had a nation, all those years under all of those kings, and they were bringing, constantly bringing sacrifices. The blood was being sprinkled. Okay? Those sins were being covered. So let's take a look at how God applies righteousness. Righteousness applied, verse 22, provides further definition. Even the righteousness of God through faith, here's the qualifier, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. John MacArthur explains Righteousness is the state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and holy character. This righteousness is unique. There's three things that it tells us here. Number one, God is its source. Isaiah 45, 8 says, Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I the Lord, and the word Lord there is Yahweh, okay, have created it. The second thing it tells us, it fulfills both the penalty and precept of God's law. Christ's death as a substitute pays the penalty exacted on those who failed to keep God's law. And his perfect obedience to every requirement of God's law fulfills God's demand for comprehensive righteousness. And the third thing is, because God's righteousness is eternal, the one who receives it from him enjoys it forever. Now, I want you to note here something. As you read verse 21 and go into verse 22, you come to an end of a subject. Okay? At the very end of verse 22, it says, On all who believe, period, which explains to whom those verses apply. God says His righteousness is now available apart from the law to all and on all who believe. Then verse 22 continues with this little phrase. For there is no difference. Why is this phrase important? Remember that God's Word tells us to cut straight or rightly divide the Word of truth. What does that mean? And I've had people look at me really funny when I read that verse. What does it mean? When you need to cut a stone or a block to provide... To to precisely fit in a wall or corner of a house, or as simply as a straight line from A to B. It means not veering away from the truth. Okay? Here's what you got to watch out for. We cannot allow human philosophy or emotional fleshly issues 
to steer us away from the proper application of Scripture. This is what's happening in our world today. We're letting emotional issues, the wants and desires of the flesh, to bend and pervert the proper application of the Word of God. Now, let's look at something else here. Righteousness need. Why do we need God's righteousness, you'd ask yourself. The translators of God's word, God's word sought to emphasize this small and important phrase, for there's no difference. This phrase levels the field. When it comes to salvation, the Jew has no special privilege. The Gentile is at no disadvantage. The atheist can't say, well, I've got a separate place. Why, I don't need God's righteousness. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Okay? So it levels the playing field. There's no difference between the Jew or the Gentile. God's righteousness for salvation is available to all who believe. It is like saying there is only one way to be saved. You can't earn it through obedience or buy it or legalize it. God has freely made his righteousness available by believing in Jesus Christ. Verse 22 points out, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The very next phrase of verse 22, for there is no difference, transitions and joins together. Verse 21, all the way through to verse 23. Verse 23, the very well-known definition of our condition as sinners is an equalizer of persons. The verse correctly stated is, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This statement should bring every person to their knees, but, to, but simply to put it... Um, but simply put, it means because the condition of our sinfulness is universal, therefore God's righteousness is also available to all who believe. Now, let's get to the core of the matter here. God's righteousness justifies. Okay, If a sinner is already guilty, how do we receive justification? Well, listen, we couldn't save ourselves, folks. It was Jesus that went to the cross. It was Jesus that died. It was Jesus that put the blood. Okay? So let's look at this. Verse 24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Here's the core. Being justified freely by His grace. Notice that that verb justified is something that happened in the past, but yet it still applies to us in the future. Being justified freely by His grace. Now you say, well, why would it be in the past? Because guess what? Jesus and God did all of this before the foundation of the world. Before creation, folks, God saw all this. Did God know that Adam was going to sin in the Garden of Eden? Well, he had to. He's God. He knew that the selfishness of Adam, that Adam was going to choose Eve over fellowship with God. The moral conscience. The apostle develops salvation in three different ways here. Well, let me, let, me, let me talk about this. Pastor Jerry Vines says, he writes in his expository study, Bible notes, the word justified means to declare righteous. In other words, here's a person who is guilty and yet declared not guilty. The word is taken right out of the legal world. We stand before God absolutely guilty and helpless to do anything about our guilt. 
Yet in one great legal act, God acquits us of our sin and makes us acceptable in God's presence. Justification is better than forgiveness. Forgiveness is wonderful, but justification goes even deeper. You may have done something you shouldn't have done, and you can be forgiven for it, but justification removes the guilt. You are acquitted of your guilt as a sinner and made acceptable to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's justification. Why is it important to believe in Jesus Christ? Because you can have justification from the guilt of your sin. That's what Jesus did for us. Now, the apostle develops salvation in three different important terms here. Real quickly, justification. I know everybody wants to go to sleep when I start mentioning definitions. Justification, a legal declaration from a righteous judge in a court of law to remove the guilt of an offender. Second one is redemption, the action of a buyer purchasing an indebted slave from a slave market. That's what we were when we were lost. And if you don't know Jesus today, that's exactly where you're at. You're still a slave to a world system. But by believing in Jesus Christ, you can be freed. You can have that redemption. Number three, big huge word propitiation or appeasement is a religious term used by the lost in their attempt to appease or please God or their idols or gods through sacrifice. Rarely do the unbelieving attempt to appease Almighty God because they do not know Him. But through believing in Jesus Christ, they can know Him. So now, let's look at how God applies, how God provides justification and righteousness for us. From where and from what source does God's righteousness come? Verse 25 says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, that means the blood of Christ, through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because of His forbearance, God had passed over sins that were previously committed. Note this phrase, Whom God set forth, Obviously, the whom, who does that refer to? Jesus Christ. Refers back to the Son of God. Okay? God publicly placed the sacrificial crucifixion of His Son before the eyes of the world, making it a centerpiece of historical prominence and permanence. There is, a, there is no salvation of mankind without the event of the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This event is center focal point to God's word. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him, meaning Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become righteousness of God in him. We can't become righteousness unless God gives us that righteousness. And in this verse, he tells us where that righteousness comes from. He set forth Christ. Going a little bit further. This big word, propitiation, found only in four verses in the English New Testament. The form of the Greek word is used in verse 25. It's a noun. It most literally means mercy seat or covering over of sins as it is derived from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Hebrews 9.5 reads, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The same Greek word. This Greek word has three meanings. First of all, it means to placate or to appease. Secondly, it means to be propitious or atoning and merciful. And third, it means to make propitiation for someone. However, the New Testament never describes people as appeasing God Almighty. Instead, Luke 18, 13 and 1 John 2, 2 make it clear that the New Testament describes God 
as being merciful to and making propitiation for us. God provides a merciful expiation or atonement of sins of believers through the death of Christ. But since God speaks, I mean, Paul speaks of God's wrath, it must also speak of the conciliation of God's anger. Okay? Namely, the sacrifice of his son. Remember that when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did, what did God do to cover their sin? He killed an animal, didn't he? He killed an animal and he gave them the skins. And it was God that did that. God that did that. God covered over those sins. You see what I'm saying? So God has taken everything from the old sacrificial system and he's put it in Christ. And he sets forth Christ as our mercy seat. Alva J. McLean says this, he says, Roman, in the Romans, the gospel of God's grace, it says, a propitiation is a reason for not executing judgment which is deserved. The Greek words, the same word applied to the mercy seat in the Old Testament where the blood of the sacrificial lamb was sprinkled. The only reason that God set aside judgment was that a broken law was covered by the blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the only thing that saved him. God hath set forth Christ. In John 2.2, 2, it says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also of the whole world. Propitiation brings about the merciful removal of guilt through divine forgiveness. In the Septuagint, the, the term for propitiation was used for the sacrificial mercy seat. And I'm going to read through, you don't have to turn there unless you want to. Exodus 25, 17 through 22 says this. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above and covering the mercy seat and they shall face one another. Their faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you, sh and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony. That's the word of God, folks, that I will give you. And there I will meet you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. This practice indicates that God's righteous wrath had to be appeased somehow. God sent his son, satisfied his own wrath with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. His sins made it necessary for Jesus to suffer the agonies of crucifixion. But God demonstrated his love and justice by providing his own son. The sacrifice of Jesus' sin for life is so effective that it can, be, can supply forgiveness for the whole world. Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe in Christ. Not everyone will be saved, but Jesus offers salvation for all. You see, we can't change the fact that Jesus went to the cross. Jesus never came before any of us. He didn't come before the world and ask, well, what, you think I ought to go to that cross to, to, to forgive you? Do you think that I should do that? He didn't do that, did he? He just did it of his own accord. 
two phrases that follow the word propitiation here, by which God sets a condition, by his blood and through faith. Dr. McCain explains, propitiation, the mercy seat, cannot be had without blood. Yet, propitiation is not operative without faith. You've got to believe. See, Jesus doesn't march out on the stage, die on the cross, get buried in his resurrection. He, he doesn't march out when he's resurrected and say, you've got to believe. You know that? He comes and he shows himself to his disciples and his disciples spread the word of God and God produces the Bible that we're to live in, the word of God. So when we believe, we appropriate from God the righteousness that justifies us. Finally, let's look at God's demonstration. Why did God make Jesus, his son Jesus Christ to be this place of mercy, this seat of mercy? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Two reasons. First of all, in verse 25, it says to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Old Testament saints before the cross had their sins committed, I mean, had their sins overlooked or passed over. Acts 17, 30 and 31 says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance by this to all by raising him from the dead. Death, burial, and resurrection, folks. Death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? Secondly, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. You see that? That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. You can be very thankful for that verse. God could, God could simply be just by openly punishing us for our sin. The outcome of that would be our death and eternity in hell. No one would be saved. God in his grace chose to show mercy and declared us righteous and justified us based on the work of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Romans 3.28 says this, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified or made righteous, declared righteous by an act of God, by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. If you're a born-again Christian today, you have a responsibility to demonstrate the righteousness and love of God by loving those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed. Like it says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Because every time you take that gospel out to the world and you share that gospel with somebody, you're sharing the righteousness that justifies the sinner. The forgiveness, the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great responsibility. And we demonstrate that. Jesus demonstrated what he's talking about right here. When he went to the cross, died for us, and was resurrected again. He demonstrated that it is our responsibility to become more like him, to demonstrate. If you're here today and you have not believed on Jesus Christ, 
What you have heard today should clearly tell you that God loves you and has declared you righteous. He he did this before we were ever saved. He said, listen, I'm going there. Just like he did for Adam and Eve. He, He covered us over. When you believe in the truth that's in this book, when you believe this gospel, that righteousness is applied to your account. Abraham, one last thing, Abraham. Abraham was chosen. Was Abraham a Jew when he was chosen? No, he came out of the Earl of the Chaldees. He was a Gentile. But he was of this little itty bitty tiny tribe called Heber. It's where we get the name Hebrew. And it says that Abraham's faith was accounted to him for righteousness. If you haven't believed in Jesus Christ today and you want that righteousness accounted to your account, just believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, today for the word of God. We thank you so much for what you're doing in our our lives and our hearts. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today, Father, that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would open their heart, ask you into their lives, Father in heaven. By confessing their sin and asking you to be their Savior, Father in heaven, and believing the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.